If you would, I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Amos chapter 7. As we continue looking at the word of the Lord through the prophet Amos this morning, we'll be in Amos chapter 7. And as we consider this chapter, we're going to be breaking it up. First, we'll read uh, the first nine verses. And in those first nine verses, we'll have two points. Uh, First, faithful intercession. And secondly, the test of the plumb line. Faithful intercession and the test of the plumb line. And then as we look through uh, to verses 10 through the end of the chapter, the point there will be the word of God brings opposition. So three, three points, two, uh, two divisions in the text. Faithful intercession, test of the plumb line, the word of God brings opposition. So let's look to the text, Amos chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Amos writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he says, Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing, And it came about, when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land, that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. The Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire. And it consumed the great deep, and it began to consume the farmland. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. The Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. Then he showed me. And behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now in these first nine verses, the Lord shows to Amos three separate images. Verse 1, we have the swarm of locusts. Verse 4, the fire that was consuming the great deep and then began consuming the land. And then in verse 7, we have this this wall with a plumb line. And each of these images is an image of judgment. Let's consider each one. First, in verse 1, we have the locust swarm. I think the ESV is probably more helpful in its translation here than the New American Standard when it gives the timing here as the latter Uh, as when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. The first growth is referred to here as the king's shearing or the king's mowing, and the idea is probably that this first mowing of hay was to be set aside for the king's livestock. This seems perhaps to have been some kind of a tax that was levied on the people by the king, and now this second growth has begun to sprout. And it's then that the locusts are seen to attack And if they indeed did so, there would be crop failure, perhaps leading to famine. And if there was famine, there would be devastation. And so Amos then intercedes on behalf of Israel, as we see in verse 2. Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. And the Lord relented or changed his mind and said, it shall not be. Similar exchange takes place in verses 4 through 6 in regard to the fire. Fire consumed the great deep and began to consume Part of the land, and again, Amos interceded in a manner similar to what he had done before. Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. 
And again, the Lord changed his mind and relented and said, this shall not be. Now, there are a few observations that are to be made here. There's one that's theological and two that are practical. A theological observation needs to be made in regard to this language about the Lord relenting or changing his mind or, as the King James Version translated it, the Lord repenting. We have to understand that this is a manner of speaking. In the true and ultimate sense, the Lord does not relent, repent, or change his mind. He has no evil or no sin of which he needs to repent. He is perfectly righteous and holy. Nor does the Lord need to repent because of a lack of knowledge or because something caught him off guard. He knows everything. His knowledge is exhaustive. He declares the end from the beginning. And so in the true and ultimate sense, the Lord does not repent or change his mind. And so we read, for instance, in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And so when we read then other passages of Scripture where it is expressly declared to us that the Lord repents or relents or changes his mind, we have to understand that this is a manner of speaking. This is a figure of speech in which God is communicating using human terms and human language to demonstrate something to us, namely that he is changing his outward behavior and his methods of acting. His will remains always the same, but his outward behavior changes based on the wickedness of people or on the repentance of people. In this case, his outward threat of judgment was relented based on the intercession of Amos. And Amos pleaded with the Lord for mercy and asked him to stay his hand. And in both cases, the Lord relented. And this brings us then to the practical considerations that arise from these first six verses. For one, notice here the concern that Amos had for the people to whom he was ministering. Amos was concerned for the well-being of these people. Obviously, as a prophet who was sent to them, he knew they were sinners. He knew that he had been sent by God to announce God's judgment to them and to call them to return to the Lord. But in his intercession for them here, we catch a glimpse of Amos' heart. He really cared about these people. He didn't want them to suffer the judgment of God. He had their well-being at heart. Now, in this respect, he is notably different from his contemporary, Prophet Jonah. These men were both up and prophesying during the reign of Jeroboam II. God, of course, sent Jonah to Nineveh to announce judgment against the Assyrians. And Jonah was afraid that God would be merciful. That's why he didn't want to go in the first place. He wanted to see the judgment of God come down upon these people. Now, I realize there's some different dynamics going on there in that Jonah was a Jewish prophet sent to the Gentiles. And so, in one sense, it seems very natural, at least natural from a fleshly perspective, why Jonah would want to see God's judgment. Amos, on the other hand, is a Jewish prophet from from Judah sent to the northern kingdom of Israel going to his fellow Jews. But on that account, it should be noted that Amos was going across the borderlands from, from Judah to Israel. And though there were some historic bonds of blood and brotherhood, nevertheless, over the years, there had been a lot of bad blood between the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. There had been war between the kingdoms. People had been killed. Just because there's a historic bond of blood and brotherhood did not mean that there was necessarily brotherly affection. 
But even if there was something in the background that might have caused Amos to have animosity in his heart toward these people, he demonstrates none. Despite whatever disgust he may have had with the wickedness of the people, their idolatries, their immoralities, their oppression of the poor, and so on, even that did not cause him to harden his heart toward these people. He knew their wickedness quite well. He could see it. He announced that the judgment of God was coming on them because of it. But he didn't want them to get wiped out. In this, he wanted their well-being. Calvin said it well when he said, Let then all teachers in the church learn to put on these two feelings, to be vehemently indignant whenever they see the worship of God profaned, to burn with zeal for God, and to show that severity which appeared in all the prophets whenever due order decays, and at the same time to sympathize with miserable men whom they see rushing headlong into destruction, and to bewail their madness, and to interpose with God as much as is in them, in such a way, however, that their compassion render them not slothful or indifferent, so as to be indulgent to the sins of men. What we see in Amos is that Amos is not the kind of prophet who could deliver his message to the people, and they just turn around and shrug his shoulders and say, it's up to you. I don't care if you get destroyed or not. That's not Amos. Amos is full of tenderness and sympathy for the people who are threatened with judgment. And we would do well to learn from this. Obviously, we all know that we can't change anyone's heart. We cannot give saving faith or repentance to anyone. Saving faith is a gift of God, and ultimately we have to trust the Lord to work out His sovereign purposes in our evangelism. All that is fair and true enough. But with that said, we must also take a cue here from Amos and learn to care for those to whom we minister because heaven and hell are on the line. Real souls are at stake. These are real people who have real lives and eternally real prospects before them. So as we look out to the world, as we look to our neighbors and our friends, Let's take the gospel to them. Let's have compassion on them as we do so. And by God's grace, let's love them as we do so. And that leads then to the second practical lesson which is to be gleaned here, namely the power of prayer. Amos interceded for Israel and the Lord relented. James tells us that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, in James 5.16. And we see that on display right here. Amos interceded for Israel and the Lord relented. As one writer noted, prayer is a means by which the Lord of all brings his determined purposes to pass. And that is true. God works through means, and one of those means is by prayer. God averted judgment here by means of prayer. We see this many times in Scripture. Abraham interceded with Sodom, uh, for Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord agreed that he would not destroy the cities if ten righteous men could be found. Ten righteous men were not found, and the cities were destroyed. But nevertheless, Abraham interceded. Likewise, Moses interceded for the nation of Israel when the Lord threatened to destroy them after the incident of the golden calf, Exodus 32. God grants help and blessings by means of prayer. This is why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11, And he will yet deliver us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. 
Paul recognized that in his life and ministry, the prayers of God's people formed an active part of this, that one of the means by which God would would preserve him and use him was the prayers of God's people. Likewise, this is why the angel Gabriel could say to Zacharias in Luke 1.13, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Now certainly John's coming had been part of God's eternal plan to send a forerunner before the Messiah. His coming and his ministry had been prophesied for hundreds of years by prophets like Isaiah and Malachi. But at the same time, Zacharias and Elizabeth wanted a child and they prayed for it. And Gabriel said, your petition has been heard. God works by means of prayer. We don't twist God's arm when we pray, nor do we remind him of anything which he has forgotten. May God forbid that we should ever think such unworthy thoughts of him. And nor do we, by prayer, cause God to change what he has eternally decreed. Rather, prayer is the means by which we wait upon the Lord and the means by which we exercise our faith in him. The German Lutheran Martin Chemnitz expressed it well when he said, We, by our prayers, cannot stir up God and put him in mind of his duties. We do not pray to show that he is negligent and careless of our affairs. We do not view God as being hard and merciless or try to allure him by our prayers in order to change his mind. We know indeed that he is ready of his own will to give good things, especially to those who repent and humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, those who by faith do seek, knock, and ask. When we call upon God and think upon his promises, we bring with us likewise and exercise true faith. We do this because the Lord has promised all good things to him who knocks and asks. And so friends, what this means is that we ought to pray. Let's pray for the souls of the lost, pray that they may be brought to saving faith. Let's pray for God's mercy upon wicked and rebellious people, wicked and rebellious nations. Let's also pray for God's people, that they may be built up and sanctified, and that they may in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is our Lord Jesus Christ, because God works by means of prayer. And we see that on display for us here in Amos chapter 7. Now, as we look to verses 7 through 9, we see that despite the Lord's relenting, it's worth noting, as this chapter continues, that judgment will eventually come. Though the prayers of Amos successfully averted the judgment that was threatened in these visions of the locust swarm and the fire, which consumed the great deep and began to destroy the land. Nevertheless, verses 7 through 9 demonstrate that even though judgment may be delayed, it will eventually come on the ungodly. It was this third vision that begins in verse 7 where the Lord is standing by a wall. It's a wall that had been built with a plumb line and the Lord is holding the plumb line in his hand. Now, Far be it from me to claim great expertise in the realm of building trades, but in working on my father's nursery, I did have occasion to use a plumb line or a plumb bob on a time or two. I suppose we were working to uh, build a a frame for uh, a uh, wall on the end of a a hoop house where you'd cover it with plastic and put the plants on the inside in in the winter, and 
uh, and so I had had the opportunity to use a plumb line. A plumb line is basically a string with a metal weight that's that's on the end of it, and then that is suspended down from above where a wall or a post is supposed to be set, and so that you can tell when it's truly vertical. The, the string is string's going to be vertical because it's got that weight on the end of it, and then you're supposed to get the wall or the post into line with where the string is, and so. If you want to think of it this way, a plumb line basically does for the vertical what a, what a level does for the horizontal as you're seeking to build something. And so this wall here in verse 7 was built with a plumb line. In other words, it was built according to the true standard. Now the ancient Jewish, Jewish church and state were framed according to the true standard of God's word. God had given them his good and holy law as the true standard by which their institutions were to be formed and by which they were to function. But the northern kingdom had diverged from that standard, both in regard to church and state. And now the Lord brings, the, brings out the plumb line to compare where they're at, where this, where this wall is at now, compared to the true standard. And so we read the Lord's words there in verse 8. Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. And knowing that they will not match up to the standard as they ought to, the Lord immediately adds, I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel will be laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Though the Lord was willing to withhold judgment for a time, as we saw in the first six verses, his judgment would not lie sleeping forever. A time would come when the Lord would spare them no longer. They were out of plumb, as it were, because they had shifted away from his holy standard. In verse 9, we see that both the religious and civic institutions of Israel are singled out for destruction. The high places and sanctuaries where the false and ungodly worship was being carried out would be laid waste. And also the Lord announces that he would rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. And this prophecy against the house of Jeroboam was fulfilled in the days of his son Zechariah. We're told of this in 2 Kings 15.10 about how a man named Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against Jeroboam's son Zechariah and struck him before the people and killed him. And the text of 2 Kings goes on to say, 2 Kings 15, 12, this is the word of the Lord which he spoke to Jehu. Jehu was the, the founder of that dynasty in the northern kingdom a few generations prior to Jeroboam. This is the word of the Lord which he spoke to Jehu, saying, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. The Lord had promised Jehu in 2 Kings ten thirty that his sons would sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. That's the way it was. The Lord brought judgment on that fourth generation after Jehu, fulfilling the promise to Jehu and fulfilling the promise here of verse 9 that the Lord would rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now the lesson to be learned here is that God's judgment will one day come on all who are out of plumb. The judgment may be delayed by the intercession of God's servant, but it will come one day like a storm and destroy the wicked. And the bad news is that all of us in our natural condition, apart from the grace of God, are out of plumb. So we read in Ecclesiastes 7.29, God made man upright, but they have sought out many devices. God made Adam and Eve sinless, but they listened to Satan instead of God and plunged the entire human race into ruin. And the result is that we do not match up to the plumb line of God's standard. The standard is straight and upright, 
but we're slanted very far away from that standard in our natural condition. Left to ourselves, we're the people of Titus chapter 3, verse 3, who are described as foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's who we are in our natural condition, and that is a far cry from the Lord's plumb line. And judgment comes on those who are out, out of plumb. And what this means is that we need a Savior. We need someone to grant us the standing which we ourselves have lost because of our sin. And that Savior is Jesus Christ, the Lord our righteousness, who gives His righteousness to those who believe. He imputes His righteousness to us so that we are reckoned as righteous in the sight of God. And not only is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us in our justification, but we ourselves are restored to that holiness and righteousness which we have forfeited in our sins. All who believe in Christ are not only washed from our sins and justified, all who believe in Christ are also sanctified. The Swiss theologian Johann Heinrich Heidegger defined sanctification helpfully when he said, when he defined it as the grace or gracious favor of God, whereby he, on account of Christ the Redeemer, through the Holy Spirit, restores the corrupted nature of man, justified by faith according to the word of God, more and more to his image, so that in turn he daily dies to sin and lives to righteousness for salvation in Christ. It's in our sanctification that our corrupted nature is restored more and more to the image of God. Indeed, when Paul speaks of putting on the new man in Ephesians 4.24, he calls it the new man, which according to God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We're to put on this new man. And what is this but a restoration to the plumb line? We had shifted away from the plumb line because we had built on a foundation of sin that shifts like sand, but through Christ we are restored to the plumb line. We're brought back to the righteousness and holiness which we had abandoned. And so don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can continue to lean and totter away from the plumb line and yet be cleansed of your sins and justified in the sight of God. All who are justified are also sanctified. And though we will never match the plumb line perfectly in this life, nevertheless, each day, as it were, should find us approaching nearer and nearer to the plumb line. Just imagine yourself as a post that is set in the ground and you're leaning away from the plumb line. The plumb line is here and you're leaning back this way. Each time the dirt is tamped around the post or each time the builder strikes the post with a hammer, it's getting closer and closer to where it ought to be. And this is the Christian life with us as the post and with God as the builder. The Holy Spirit is working to conform us to the image of Christ. And so let's not be stubborn and resist the work of the Holy Spirit and continue to try leaning away while, meanwhile, the Holy Spirit is, is working to conform us to the image of Christ. Friend, these are your only options. Be restored to God's plumb line through repentance and faith in Christ or to be devastated in ruins when the judgment of God comes. Now, if you have more questions about what it means to repent and believe in Christ, you can talk to me or to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about what this means to repent and believe in Christ and to be restored to, uh, to God's holy standard. Now let's look to the last eight verses of the chapter as we come uh, to our third point, which is the Word of God 
brings opposition. Let's look back to the text in verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away from the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now hear the word of the Lord, you who are saying, You shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord, Your wife will become a harlot in the city, your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword, and your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Now in these verses we find a brief historical account of Amos's interaction with Amaziah the priest of Bethel. Evidently, Amos's preaching had struck a nerve and had led Amaziah the priest to reach out to Jeroboam the king. Verses 10 and 11 give the words of Amaziah's message to Jeroboam. And what we find there is a mixture with a bit of truth and a bit of twist. The truth was that Amos had announced that Israel would go into exile. Amos had said as much in chapter 5, verse 27. But what Amos had not said is that Jeroboam would die by the sword. Amaziah is probably drawing from the prophecy given in verse 9 where Amos had said that the Lord would rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Amos spoke of the house of Jeroboam and not strictly of Jeroboam himself. And it is noteworthy that we find in verse 10 that Amaziah charges Amos with conspiracy, as if he's launching some kind of plot against Jeroboam and the northern kingdom. But the reality is that there is no such thing at all that is going on. Amos is simply delivering the word of God to a rebellious people, announcing that God was going to do this thing, not trying to stir up a crowd to do this or not trying to take any violent action himself. It's no surprise, given Amos' message, that Amaziah says that the land is unable to endure his words. The land could not endure his words because it had no place for them, no place for the truth of God, no desire to repent and return, no desire to seek the Lord that they may live. And having no desire to hear the words of the prophet, Amaziah tells Amos to go back home. In verse 12, Amos is ordered to get out of Bethel because this is the place of the royal residence and because that was the sanctuary of the king, or we might think of it as the state-sponsored center of worship. And in his way of telling Amos to go back home, there's a, a bit of a hint of the view with which Amaziah probably views Amos. He says to him, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread and there do your prophesying. When he says, there eat your bread, he seems to imply that he's viewing Amos as someone who's in it just for the money, as if he's just prophesying in order to make a living so that he could eat his bread. 
Now, that may well have been the way that Amaziah functioned. As he's a priest there at Bethel. He might be just doing the priest thing to earn his living. But that's, that's not why Amos was prophesying. And so Amos replies to Amaziah in verses 14 and 15. And he says, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. For I am a herdsman and grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, in saying what he says, we might at first scratch our heads a little bit. He says, I am not a prophet. Well, what do you mean you're not a prophet? You're, you're prophesying to the people here. What's, what's going on? Well, as he, as he goes on, it's clear that he's not denying absolutely that he is a prophet. He goes on to make clear that the Lord told him to prophesy, right? That's what he says in verse 15. The Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. And he was obedient to that call. He was prophesying. And so in that sense, he was a prophet. But what he's denying is that he is a prophet in the professional sense of the word. He was not trained up to be a prophet. Now, in the historical account of 2 Kings, especially in those portions connected with the prophet Elisha, we read about a group of men who were called the sons of the prophets. You find reference to them in places like 2 Kings 2.3, 2.7, 2.15, 4.1, 4.38, 5.22, and chapter 6, verse 1. The scriptures themselves don't tell us a whole lot about these men and what they did or who they were, but it seems very likely that these men referred to as the sons of the prophets were students who studied the word of God under prophets like Elisha and were themselves likely teachers of the word of God. And so Amos replies to this charge that he's prophesying just for money by saying, no, I'm not that kind of a prophet. That's, that's not my livelihood. I've not been trained for this. I'm a farmer. I work with herds and sycamore fig trees. I'm doing this because the Lord has given me a special and direct calling. The Lord took me from following the flock and brought me here to speak these words to all of you. And so here I am. This, more or less, was the position of Amos. He'd not been trained up to be a prophet, nor had he been a long-standing prophet. He's a herdsman and a tender of trees whom the Lord called to prophesy. And as the end of the chapter makes clear, this was the very thing that Amos continued to do. He did not back down at all from the pressure that Amaziah applied to him to make him stop. And so in verses 16 and 17, he confronts Amaziah head on. He says, Now hear the word of the Lord. You who are saying, You shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife will become a harlot in the city, and your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Now let's learn a couple of lessons here from this latter portion of chapter 7. The first lesson is this. Don't be surprised when the word of God is rejected. Don't be surprised when the word of God is rejected. This is par for the course. By and large, the ungodly don't like the word of God. By and large, the ungodly don't want you to proclaim the word of God to them. They want you to be quiet, to cease and desist, or perhaps to proclaim the word of God somewhere else, just not to them. They will misinterpret or at least misrepresent what you are doing, even as Amaziah did here when he claimed that Amos had conspired against the king, and whether intentionally or accidentally, they will garble the message. They'll put things in your mouth that you did not say. Maybe because they didn't understand. Maybe because they're just looking for some way to hurt you. 
But don't be surprised. This is the way it is for the servants of God. This is what happened to Amos, broadly speaking. This is what happened to Paul in the New Testament times as we read of the troubles that were caused for him both by Jews and Gentiles in the book of Acts. It's not without cause that our Lord Jesus Christ said to us as we read this morning in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is what happened to Amos. So don't be surprised. Be ready for the rejection, the misrepresentation, the calls to cease and desist, while God, in his grace, uses his word to bring life to his elect. The word of God and the word of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. But on the other hand, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul speaks of this, 1 Corinthians 1, 22-25, when he says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and to Gentiles' foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So don't be surprised. And the second observation here is that the path of faithfulness is just to keep on going through the good times through the bad times through the acceptance through the opposition just keep on going that's what amos does here the powers that were told him no longer prophesy at bethel but after defending himself and explaining his calling amos says to amaziah now hear the word of the lord And then he proceeded to give Amaziah a direct and personal prophecy in regard to what would happen in his future and the future of his family. The path of faithfulness is just to keep going, unflinching in the face of opposition, so long as we're speaking the truth in love. And thus it was that Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Well, that language there in Second Timothy of, of in season and out of season seems to be used in references uh, in reference to times when people, on the one hand, will receive it, that's in season, versus on the other hand, when they won't receive it, when they'll oppose it, that's out of season. Now, obviously, we want people to receive the word of God, to accept it, to believe it, to obey it. That is the ideal circumstance. But even when the opposite is true, to keep going. Have to stand our ground, keep holding fast to the truth, and holding out the truth. Let's speak the truth in love, but always make sure that what we say in love is actually the truth. These are interesting times in which we are living. It seems like the complicated narrative that is the story of our times, the plot only thickens by the day. These are times when there are many voices which would want us to cease from speaking the truth of the word of God the truth of those things which our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles and prophets have taught us. In speaking those things, they say we're stirring up trouble. And indeed, we are stirring up trouble when we speak the word of God to the lost. Consciences are accused, hatred is aroused, and so forth. And what is this but modern-day Amaziah is saying to Amos, No longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Amaziahs never really go away, do they? They they show up all the time 
and say, stop speaking, stop preaching, stop proclaiming Jesus. But the path of faithfulness is to just keep going, to accept whatever insults may come our way and just keep moving along. And we do this, as Paul would say in Philippians 1, 28 and 29, in no way alarmed by our opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For it has been granted to us for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This is the path of faithfulness. May our Lord Jesus Christ strengthen us by his Spirit so that we would be ready in season and out of season. May he hold us fast and keep us faithful in the evil day. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the example of Amos and his faithfulness in persevering in times of opposition. Lord, we pray that you'd grant us wisdom, appropriate boldness, and perseverance as well. Lord, let us never shrink from the truth of your word, but let us hold fast to it and continue holding it out to a lost and dying world who, is, who are desperately in need of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.